Hello, and welcome to the Parabola Podcast. I'm story editor Betsy Cornwell. This month, I'd like to share with you some excerpts from our newest issue of Parabola, Mercy and Forgiveness. And I'll begin with the focus for the issue from editor Jeff Zaleski. Two acclaimed filmmakers open this issue of Parabola. Martin Scorsese, director of Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Casino, Silence, and other masterpieces, including this fall's offering The Irishman, and Kent Jones, creator of this year's Diane and director of the New York Film Festival. Scorsese writes of forgiveness. Jones discusses how forgiveness informs and illuminates Scorsese's movies. What stands out in both men's essays and in their art is an understanding that we each exist in a web of meaningful relationship, that what we do matters, that we each have a responsibility to others and to the world. This critical point is explored further in the issue's next essay by Sufi master Llewellyn Vaughan Lee, who details his evolution towards spiritual activism. That activism, taking responsible action toward a noble aim, finds no more fertile ground than in the practice of mercy and forgiveness. Forgive us our debts, Jesus taught, as we forgive our debtors. He also taught that the kingdom of God is within, and so it follows that we should practice mercy and forgiveness not only toward others, but toward ourselves as well. As Nobel Peace Prize winner Desmond Tutu points out in this issue, failure to, for- to forgive locks you in a state of victimhood, and when you forgive, you are no longer chained to the perpetrator. These ideas are explored throughout the issue in entries ranging from Mirabai Star on the art of mercy to Sean Korn on forgiving the unforgivable. From a meditation on why whales forgive us their slaughter, to the story of an Israeli woman forsaking vengeance for her son's murder. From a consideration by Pope John Paul II of the parable of the prodigal son, to a remarkable gallery of paintings celebrating the Merciful Heart Sutra, and much more. May this fall 2019 issue of Parabola benefit us all in our search for peace and understanding, for mercy and forgiveness. Let's look now at Who Decides History's Future by Alexander Haven. In the era of princes, Abyssinia had no king. It had an emperor in name alone, locked in his fortress to the north. He wore a crown of gold and bore the blood of King Solomon, but he did not rule. Instead, he was ruled by his regent, who in turn tried to rule over the warring princes spread across the land. Abyssinia knew no peace. One of those princes lost his title when he lost his father. He fled his homeland, known as the Taste of Honey, for school where he learned poetry, history, and the art of war. But his new home fell under the rule of another prince, and he ran once more, lest he lose his head like he lost his crown. With the cunning he had learned, the prince became an outlaw and the master of an army. He soon caught the eye of the emperor's regent, who offered the emperor's granddaughter to the prince as a wife, hoping to bind this warrior to the line of Solomon. But our prince had two secrets. First there was the prophecy, 
It was said that one day a prince would return greatness to Abyssinia as a true ruler over a united kingdom. Second, there was the blood. He too was a son of King Solomon. Our prince would see himself shrouded in myth, and so the prince of poetry and war overthrew the men in power and became the true emperor of Abyssinia. His rule spread like wildfire, pushing the very boundaries of the kingdom. He built alliances with those in Abyssinia and those far away, and all sent tribute to this promised prince. Even the most powerful queen in the world gifted him a pistol gleaming metal and wood. He wanted that modernity lit by gunpowder for Abyssinia, but his borders were a shifting line, rebels within and without. Soon the prince needed help. He wrote to the kingdoms beyond the sea, his hope lying with his friend, the powerful queen. But no help came. The prince's patience grew thin. He locked up subjects of that fateful queen, hoping to get her attention. Surely she would not abandon a fellow servant of Christ. He succeeded. The queen noticed and sent her armies to invade Abyssinia. The emperor released his prisoners, but the queen promised him only life in captivity. He was a promised prince. His myth could not end in a cage. On Easter Monday, April 13, 1868, Emperor Tirodros II shot himself with Queen Victoria's gift pistol. His became a new myth, one of an independent Ethiopia outside the control of Imperial Europe. Still the British armies came, torching his fortress and churches and looting as the city burned to ash. It took 15 elephants and 200 mules to carry the bounty to their ships. One British soldier cut off two locks of the emperor's hair while painting his deathbed portrait and brought them home to England. The emperor's son, Prince Alameyehu, who was also taken as a souvenir, first in the care of explorer Tristan Charles Sawyer Speedy, and later of Queen Victoria herself. She loved the boy and was devastated upon news of his death at age 18 when he died alone in the cold Yorkshire moors. It is too sad, she wrote in her diary, all alone in a strange country without a single person or relative belonging to him. Everyone is sorry. The story of Emperor Tirodros II is all but forgotten in Britain, but in Ethiopia his legend is one of epic proportions. Plays, songs, and memory have kept Tiwodros alive in the Ethiopian canon. But the loot from the British expedition to Abyssinia and the aftermath of Tiwodros's suicide still largely remains in British collections. In March 2019, however, locks of hair taken from the emperor were finally returned and reinterned at his tomb in Ethiopia. In a powerful ceremony in London, the cultural minister for Ethiopia, Dr. Harut Kassaw, received the locks, proclaiming that for Ethiopians, these are not simply artifacts or treasures, but constitute a fundamental part of the existential fabric of Ethiopia and its people. Terry Dendy, head of collection standards and care at the National Army Museum, where the locks had been held since the mid-20th century, explained the decision in a brief letter to the public. Having spent considerable time researching the provenance and cultural sensitivities around this matter, we believe the Ethiopian government claim to repatriate is reasonable, and we are pleased to be able to assist. Our decision to repatriate is very much based on the desire to inter the hair within the tomb alongside the emperor. In a letter meant to be merciful, there is an edge of an imperial sword. This was a decision for Britain to make, not Ethiopia. But to whom should the emperor belong? 
The West is wrestling with its colonial heritage in the most literal sense. Its museums teem with treasure taken on conquests abroad. Crowns and swords, books and bones, the breadth of culture ripped from its home is hard to comprehend, as is the sheer scale of it. 90% of Africa's art is held on other continents. Imagine the Liberty Bell gone, Versailles stripped of its hall of mirrors, the Roman Forum empty of columns and stones. To see them, you would have to travel across seas, deserts, mountains, apply for visas, and buy a ticket for a glance at your people's history behind glass. Spread that theft to Asia, the Americas, and even other corners of Europe. The scope is unimaginable, as are the emotional scars left by the absence of national treasures. This is not just about the return of African art, Prince Kuma Ndumbe III of Cameroon explains. When someone's stolen your soul, it's very difficult to survive as a people. The question of what to do with objects collected during the colonial period is gaining traction with those beyond museum curators. Around the time of the return of Tiwodros's hair, President Emmanuel Macron of France announced, I cannot accept that a large part of the cultural heritage of several African countries is in France, and declared that the return of colonial collections would be a priority for his government. While many see it as a moral or philosophical question, the repatriation of collections is also a legal one. Many governments have laws preventing the breakup of national collections, no matter their provenance. There have been several attempts to work around this. Some have turned to loans, by which objects can be put in displays in their country of origin, while technically still belonging to colonial powers who took it. Though not a perfect solution, it offers the first step for many people to reclaim their history. But it is not only treasure that was taken, as seen in the case of Tiwodros's hair. Groups from around the world are campaigning for the bodily remains of their ancestors to be returned in their rightful resting places. In America, the leggings and hair of Sitting Bull were returned by the Smithsonian to the Native American leader's descendants in 2007, after years of campaigning. Across the world, museums and scientific collections are being pressed to return the remains of indigenous Australians, many of whom were disinterred for research up through the 1940s. Items of spiritual significance are also at the heart of these fights. The Rapa Nui people of the Easter Islands have been campaigning for the return of their world-famous Moai, or Easter Island head statue, which currently stands in the British Museum. The Moai represents a deified ancestor and is believed to have brought peace to the island a thousand years ago. It embodies the spirit of an ancestor, almost like a grandfather. This is what we want returned to our island, not just a statue, explains Carlos Edmonds, the president of the Council of Elders. The pain in its absence can be felt in the statue's name, Hoa Hakananai, meaning lost friend. It was renamed after the British took it in 1868. But there are many who oppose the repatriation of collections. Museums turn to provenance to support their claim to items, pointing to the legality by which they were purchased. The most famous case is that of the Parthenon marbles, which were collected by Lord Elgin in Athens and are currently housed in London. While Greece continues to demand their return, the British Museum argues that Lord Elgin collected them with the full knowledge and permission of the Ottoman authorities. Others worry about the safety of objects if moved from their current homes. Museums can be looted or burned down, as was the case of the National Museum of Brazil in 2018, where as much as 90% of the collection was destroyed. We must protect the world's heritage. Would returning objects threaten their survival? 
there is one argument against repatriation that stands out amongst the others. Those from both sides of the discussion who want only some work repatriated, while other pieces remain in the world's most eminent museums alongside Western masters. Sent back home, heritage might be forgotten, but next to Rodin, Da Vinci, and O'Keeffe, all countries may be seen on the world stage. The British Museum uses this argument in their claim over the Parthenon marbles, highlighting that if returned to Athens, the statues would be appreciated against the backdrop of Athenian history, while in London, they are an important representation of ancient Athenian civilization in the context of world history. Are the world's top museums then the curators of worth? There is no question that museums do important, irreplaceable work, and that far from all collections are built from stolen goods. But as we begin to question who owns the past, more questions arise about museums' role in the current world climate. Are they the rightful guardians of our heritage, or are they the last bastion of empire, clinging to treasure under the guise of a moral code? Many of the arguments against repatriation echo with racist tones, like that of the safety of objects. New museums are being built across the world, like the Museum of Black Civilizations in Senegal, to modern safe standards. It is true that the museum burned in Brazil, but so did Notre Dame in Paris. Can anywhere truly promise survival for these ancient artifacts? Similarly, the legality of purchase is questionable if one side was a conquering force backed by the strength of an empire. What fair agreement can be made with a war machine in the negotiations? There is forgiveness to be sought in these great museums, but beyond them too. One misty spring day in England, during her visit to collect Emperor Tiwodros II's hair, Minister Cassaw stood silently in the catacombs of Windsor Castle, a wreath laid by her feet. Nearby, a brass plaque reads, I was a stranger, and ye took me in. She stood for minute silence in honor of Emperor Tiwodros II's son, Prince Alamiyehu, who is buried in the castle's St. George's Chapel, amongst the kings and queens of England. Since 2007, Ethiopia has requested the return of his body, so that he might be interned alongside his father, but so far they remain rebuffed by Queen Elizabeth II, who says that while she sympathizes, the prince cannot be exhumed without disturbing the sanctity of the others buried with him. There is no easy path to heal the trauma of our entangled histories, so intertwined by the brutal reign of empires that our dead share the same grave. But there is a reckoning upon us that we cannot ignore. To whom does history belong? And who will choose its future? Let's turn now to one of the epicycles from this issue, which on a personal note is one of my favorite fairy tales that I have ever collected for Parabola. This is a Scandinavian folktale originally collected by Sven Grundvig, called The Woman Without a Shadow. Once there was a woman who was afraid of having children. All the other women she knew were afraid of not having them, so she felt alone in her fear and that made her even more afraid. Her new husband, the town pastor, wanted children very much. She wished to change her own mind in order to please him, but she could not. The woman's fear grew deeper the longer she was married. Other women spoke of help they had received from a wise woman who lived in the forest, a woman her husband called a wicked witch, and she wondered if this wise woman could help her too. 
So one night, after her husband fell asleep, the woman left her marriage bed and walked into the woods. She came to the wise woman's cottage, which was overgrown with flowering vines so that she could barely see it. She brushed the vines aside and knocked on the cottage's wooden door. An ancient crone opened it and gestured for her to come in. The younger woman sat at the table and sighed and explained her fear. The crone listened, and then she got up and looked through her shelves and cupboards. She picked up a small wicker basket containing seven white stones and set it down before the younger woman. Throw these seven stones into a well that you will pass as you return home, and you will be protected from bearing children, she said. The woman thanked the crone, and leaving behind a coin she had taken from her husband's full coffer as payment, she left the cottage and began her walk back through the forest. Soon she came to a well, just as the crone had said she would. She looked down into it, but the well was so deep that she could see only darkness inside, in spite of the full moon above her. She threw the stones, one by one, into the well. With every splash, she thought she heard the cry of a child. As the last stone left her hand, something thin and dark slipped from behind her and followed the stone down into the water. The woman felt suddenly lighter, as if a weight had lifted from her body. She went home and got back into bed, where she fell quickly and peacefully asleep. A month later, the woman attended an evening funeral over which her husband presided. After the funeral, they left the church together. As they walked through the churchyard under the light of the full moon, her husband noticed that the woman cast no shadow. Wife, he cried, what monstrous sin have you committed that God has seen fit to take your shadow away? The woman said she did not know, but her husband pressed her and threatened her until she finally admitted what she had done. Please forgive me, she said. I did this because I am afraid to have children. Cursed woman, her husband replied, shaking with anger. Forgive you? Not even God could forgive such an unnatural fear or such an act of dark magic. Flowers will grow from my fine house's slate roof before God forgives a woman like you. The pastor pointed down the road that led away from the churchyard, away from their town. Leave this holy ground. You are no wife for me, nor for any man. I never wish to see you again. So the woman turned away from the pastor and set off down the road. Moonlight shone through her body as if she was made of glass. Many years passed. The pastor wished to marry again, but all the women in town had seen his unkindness to his first wife, and he was unable to persuade any of them to take him as a husband. He hired a housekeeper to cook and clean for him, and he advanced into a bitter and resentful old age. One night, as the pastor was out preaching at evening service, his housekeeper heard a knock on the door. She opened it and saw an elderly woman wrapped in a traveling cloak. I must beg your hospitality, the woman said. I have been traveling for many years, and I find I have nowhere to lay my head tonight. The housekeeper welcomed the woman inside and fed her a good dinner, then settled her beside the fire with a hot drink. The old woman fell asleep before the fire, and when the housekeeper collected her cup, she saw that the woman cast no shadow, but she thought it was the woman's own business and none of hers, and she went up to bed. The pastor came home late, and he went straight to bed too, without noticing the old woman who slept before the fire in his living room. 
the housekeeper rose early the next morning and saw the old woman slumped in her chair. Thinking she slept, the housekeeper began her morning tasks. When the pastor came downstairs some time later, he saw the woman and gasped with rage. Even after all the years that had passed, he recognized her at once. He rushed over and began to shake her, but she would not rouse. Her body was cold and her face unchanging and serene. He soon realized that she was dead. Pastor, he heard his housekeeper cry from outside, where she was sweeping the front steps. Come and see, you will not believe it. The pastor hurried outside. The housekeeper pointed up at the slate roof of his fine house. It was blooming all over with flowers. Our time for this month's podcast has come to an end. Please feel free to visit us at parabola.org, where you'll find a host of other stories, essays, and poems available to read for free online. We'd also love to connect with you on social media, where we have active communities on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Tumblr. Remember that, thanks to the Gurdjieff Foundation of Illinois, you can now also access a free searchable index of our entire 40-year archive. Parabola Magazine is a nonprofit publication, and we rely on listeners and readers like you to keep going. Please consider subscribing, purchasing a back issue, or making a tax-deductible donation to the magazine at parabola.org. Our final thought for today comes from Robert Bresson, who said, If I were God, I'd forgive the whole world. I'm Betsy Cornwell, and this has been the Parabola Podcast. Thank you for listening. <laughs>